الجزيره بودكاست North Korean drones breach South Korean airspace the latest hostile act in a year that's seen Pyongyang test fire 19 missiles What's the secretive nation trying to achieve and how should Seoul and its western allies respond without escalating into war I'm Imran Khan and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect analyze and help define major global stories Let's bring in our guests. Mason Ritchie is an associate professor of international politics at Hancock University of Foreign Studies in Seoul. He joins us from Birmingham, Alabama. Joining us by Skype from London is Edward Howell. He's a lecturer in politics at New College at University of Oxford. And Lawrence Korb joins us by Skype from Washington, D.C. He's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and a former U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense. A warm welcome to you all. I'd like to begin with Mason Ritchie in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Mason, there's no other way of reading this other than North Korea tested South Korea's defensive capabilities and won. Is that right? I think that's a fair argument. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, this drone incursion uh, by North Korea uh, shows something that, frankly speaking, many people had already uh, expected, uh, that there were holes uh, in South Korean uh, air uh, defense, uh, particularly for these uh, smaller drones, for instance. Uh, this has been a pretty big embarrassment uh, for the Ministry of National Defense and uh, for the South Korean military. Uh, it also exposes, uh, I think, uh, several years, uh, or perhaps even more than that, of uh, neglect uh, on this type of, uh, you know, relatively asymmetric uh, threat that North Korea represents for South Korea. It also falls into a line uh, of errors and mistakes that we've seen the South Korean military make. Uh, Over this year, uh, including uh, a missile uh, response uh, that South Korea uh, made that went wrong uh, earlier this year, where one of its own missiles that was supposed to uh, sort of counter uh, the narrative uh, of a North Korean uh, missile test uh, ended up uh, circling back and and blowing up on South Korean territory uh, near a populated area. Uh, so I think uh, this is definitely a wake-up call to South Korea uh, that it needs to up its game uh, militarily if it wants to uh, continue to deter North Korea uh, from these kinds of uh, provocations in the future. Let's bring in Lawrence Korb here. South Korea is a key U.S. ally. The U.S. must be looking at this and going, where, where's all our money going? Where's all our support for South Korea gone? With these small drones, they've managed to mount an incursion. Well, there's no doubt about it. You got to remember that during the Trump administration, we downplayed our security relationship with South Korea. In fact, President Trump was talking about taking all of the American troops out of there. We finally started, you know, having uh, exercises with them again. And I do think that that's one of the reasons why the North uh, launched these attacks is because they're concerned about the U.S. and South Korea working together and increasing their uh, military uh, capability. And don't forget, in addition to this, I mean, they've been conducting an awful lot of uh, missile tests. I think there's something like 90 in this uh, in this past 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 year. So and then finally, this had held for five years. And that certainly is a step in the right direction. But I think my colleague is correct. They're trying to show that uh, South Korea is not that good. And they're probably also concerned that the Japanese are having a military buildup. Edward Howell, what does this mean for North Korea? Is this a new, resurgent, confident 
North Korea that we're witnessing? Yes, I think what's important to bear in mind is that even though this is not the first time in recent memory that we've seen North Korea use its drones, we saw North Korea do so in 2017, um, particularly in light of the deployment <clears throat> of the, uh, the THAAD, the anti-missile defense system in Seoul. I think what this represents is Kim Jong-un and the Kim regime trying to fulfill what was basically a shopping list, a wish list of weaponry, of technology, of unconventional weapons that he outlined at the Eighth Party Congress last year. So we saw um, better warheads, new types of intercontinental ballistic missiles ranging up to 15,000 kilometers, solid propellant missiles, and also reconnaissance and combat drones. So the latter has arguably um, been ticked off. And yes, for all of the reasons that um, my two colleagues have mentioned, um, to show that the South Korean defense system is weak as a way of provoking the US-South Korean alliance. But it's interesting um, to show how, although North Korea hasn't exactly responded to the, these, the most recent um, drone incursion, North Korea has responded to Japan's recent pledges to increase its defense spending to 2% of its GDP by 2027. So I think for North Korea, this is another step for the Kim regime, ultimately to desire the status of not only a nuclear state, but also a state with expanded scope and sophistication of a diverse range of capabilities. We'll get into the Japanese thing in just a moment, but I want to bring Mason Ritchie in here. There is this idea of blowback, um, where the US makes a play and then that kind of backfires on them. President Donald Trump, uh, Lawrence Korb just mentioned it here, uh, was not quite a supporter of the Kim regime, but he was, you know, certainly talking to them. And then he's suddenly kind of out the picture now, but the North Koreans are resurgent and they see themselves as being able to mount attacks like this. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I would, despite the fact that I'm not in any way a, a Donald Trump fan, just to be on the record, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that he was <laughs> anywhere near a fan of North Korea. But, um, you know, I do think that... Uh, if anything, what this probably shows, you know, the last you know, five years uh, and arguably even going back farther, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years or even longer, is that no one, no administration in Washington has a good answer for how to deal with North Korea. It's a really, really difficult problem. And frankly speaking, it's also hard for Seoul, obviously. In fact, arguably, it's even harder for Seoul. They have a much more complex uh uh, relationship with North Korea you know, because the Korean Peninsula is divided uh, and obviously because North Korea is a much more you know, immediate and direct threat uh, to South Korea. So, you know, no one has a good answer for North Korea and North Korea, frankly speaking, exploits that. Uh, and so they exploit that uh, sometimes through the use of uh, strength, uh, through you know, testing ICBMs, through provocations, which we saw, for instance, in 2010, when they blew up uh, a South Korean Corvette, uh, and when they shelled uh, islands uh, to the west uh, of Seoul uh, and Incheon. 
So sometimes they engage in provocative military behavior, whether that be tests or whether that be kinetic actions. Sometimes they use you know, what researchers have referred to as the tyranny of the weak uh, in order to try to uh, asymmetrically uh, irritate or in some cases terrorize uh, their adversaries. And these are extremely difficult and sometimes asymmetric uh, provocations and asymmetric strategies that North Korea engages in that are difficult to respond to. Uh, so I don't necessarily, you know, uh, blame too much, uh, you know, Trump or Obama before him or Bush before him. No one's had a good answer for how to deal with North Korea. Uh, the same thing is true in Seoul. Um, but the fact of the matter is the North Korean threat is growing. And, you know, North Korea seems to be on the threshold of convincing the rest of the world uh, in some sense that its possession of nuclear weapons is normalized, uh, that it should be treated something like a mixture of Israel, Pakistan, and India. And the more that that is the case, the more that North Korea is going to have room for these kinds of incursions, drones crossing the border, for the military demarcation line, uh, mischief uh, in the East Sea, mischief in the West Sea, uh, and other types of actions that uh, are uh, unfortunately going to uh, cause potential uh, inadvertent escalation uh, on the Korean Peninsula. And once that happens, all bets are off because once you start an escalatory spiral, it's awfully hard to stop. Uh, Lawrence Korb, what do you think of that? No one in D.C. has a good idea of deal on how to deal with North Korea. Do you agree? Yeah, I think uh, my colleague is absolutely correct, because no matter how you handle it, it's going to be difficult. We don't want another Korean War, obviously. That We would like North Korea not to become a nuclear power, but we didn't want you know, Pakistan to become a nuclear power uh, either. And I think we're going to have to accept the fact that they're a nuclear power, and deal with it in terms of the forces we have, the exercises uh, that uh, that we conduct. And as also been mentioned, the Japanese are increasing their defense capabilities. So while North Korea certainly is getting, you know, somewhat more powerful or closer to a nuclear weapon, their security is not increased if the United States and South Korea begin to increase their military cooperation, Japan does. And let's not forget that North Koreans are also one of the two countries in the world providing arms to Russia here uh, during this war in, uh, in Ukraine. Edward Howe, let's talk about containment here. If there's no real strategy to be able to deal with North Korea, the cost of doing business in that region means that we're just going to have to accept that North Korea will mount attacks like this. And as long as they don't escalate, that's the best we can hope for. Yes, I mean, obviously, that's, that is a very pessimistic scenario. Um, but to reiterate what has been said and to, to develop on the points raised by my colleagues, um, are we getting to that, that sort of point? I mean, I just want to add, we've, you know, we've, we've discussed different types of so-called mischief that, and provocations that North Korea has engaged in. I think we also need to add the cyber domain here as well. I mean, cyber warfare, um, as we've seen particularly throughout this year, but also beforehand, has allowed North Korea to escalate, quote-unquote, tensions without... Um, really causing much change to the status quo. And by the status quo, I mean any particular form of response from the international community. Um, you mentioned the idea of containment and you mentioned the idea of whether, in fact, we are basically going to have to accept North Korea 
as a, a nuclear armed state. Well, one of the concerns at the moment is that given um, the ongoing um, focus of the United Nations Security Council on Russia's continued war in Ukraine, actually, if North Korea were to conduct um, this seventh nuclear test that many analysts and researchers and policymakers have been calling and predicting um, for many months now, actually, this would represent a fundamental weakening of the United Nations Security Council. But also, would North Korea get away with it more so than in previous years? Most likely, yes. So we're seeing North Korea take advantage, particularly now, of um, a weakened international order and a weakened uh, sort of sclerotic United Nations Security Council focused on Ukraine, which North Korea can leverage to increase and accelerate its provocations, whether that's missile testing, whether that's um, drone warfare, whether that's cyber warfare or otherwise. We have mentioned Japan. Let's get into that now. Mason Ritchie, um, the idea uh, that Japan is now escalating quite massively its own arms program, uh, perhaps in response to what North Korea is doing, but certainly as part of its own regional security. It must be worried about North Korea and China. There, is there a danger of an arms race more significant than we've seen ever before? I don't think that there's a danger of an arms race. There is an ongoing arms race. Uh, it's, it's happening uh, as we speak. Uh, you know, Japan is uh, going to raise uh, its defense spending uh, within the next uh, five years, at least uh, that's the plan, uh, significantly. Whether or not they actually hit that 2% threshold, um, I think, is is perhaps a, a bit of an open question. But uh, and, and more importantly, how that money is spent, I think, matters uh, quite a bit. I mean, whether or not this goes into procuring uh, new systems and, and whether or not that's done with uh, with wisdom and intelligence and how that fits in with Japan's you know larger evolving um, uh, East Asian or Indo-Pacific uh, defense strategy is, of course, a separate question. Um, but it's happening. It's happening in Japan, which is developing or is going to be developing these uh, counter-strike um, capabilities. Uh, which uh, would obviously be able to hit uh, North Korea as well as China. Um, and in some sense, I think actually the Chinese uh, threat uh, from the perspective of Japan is, is really the more salient one uh, than North Korea, although North Korea is clearly uh, an important secondary worry. Uh, South Korea has been uh, increasing its uh, um, defense expenditures uh, for at least the last six or seven years, if I remember correctly, uh, by every year anywhere between 5 and 8%. Uh, so South Korea is pouring money uh, into its uh, defense, uh, uh, into its uh, national defense. You might ask where some of that money has been going to the extent that they don't seem to be able to have an answer for these smaller asymmetric threats. Uh, but they are putting money uh, into submarines. They're putting money into uh, potentially a light aircraft carrier. They put money into F-35s, of course. Uh, they're putting money uh, into uh, you know unmanned systems. They're putting money into C-4ISR, uh, so um, uh, intelligence uh, reconnaissance um, uh, and surveillance capabilities. Uh, so South Korea is doing that. We obviously see China, um, you know, massively increasing its military expenditures and growing uh, its own uh, nuclear arsenal going forward. Uh, so that's taking place, and North Korea is an instigator of this as well, as we've seen, you know, with the development of the Hwasong-17 uh, ICBM, which 
Professor Howell referenced earlier, uh, it can range all of the continental United States uh, with you know a, a, a nuclear payload. How accurate that is and how reliable it is is a separate question, but to some degree we have to assume that, that it probably functions. Uh, so there is an arms race going on uh, in the region, and I think one of the responses that we would like to see, perhaps, uh, if you're Washington, D.C., would be increased trilateral cooperation between South Korea, the United States, and Japan, uh, not only in terms of how it is that the alliance shares information with each other or how the alliances uh, share information with each other, uh, but also particularly looking towards uh, a, a combined or at least in part uh, integrated um, missile defense posture. Uh, but that's something that's going to have to move extremely slowly because South Korea and Japan uh, aren't on particularly good terms in a lot of ways. And so this type of defense cooperation uh, is a relatively tricky endeavor uh, domestically in both Tokyo and Seoul. Well, let's bring in Lawrence Korb here. Lawrence, uh, you mentioned it earlier, this idea that there is a very difficult um, way of dealing with North Korea that perhaps we don't have a grasp on. But is there anything immediate that the US can do now in dealing with North Korea? Is there a short-term, right-now solution? Well, basically, I think make it clear to them that if they don't stop this behavior, we're going to encourage the South Koreans to respond. Don't forget, after this uh, <clears throat> incursion here, the South Koreans did go into North Korea. And I think we need to make it clear that in a conventional war with uh, South Korea, they would, not, uh, they would not do well. I think the North Koreans are also thinking that everybody's focused on Taiwan so they can get away with this now. And of course, as you know, that, that if you look at the United States national security strategy, it's all about China and, uh, and, and Taiwan. So, I mean, I can't get into Kim's head, but I do think he thinks we were, were dis, distracted. And it's important that we convey to him when the Japanese, if they go through with this, they'll be the third largest military budget in the world. And is this something that he wants, given the history between Japan and the Koreas? Edward Hell, is there a way of bringing the North Koreans to the League of Nations, uh, to use a very old-fashioned term? Yeah. Um, I think what's interesting is that um, we need to understand that now is not a very good time um, for North Korea uh, to and North Korea does not want to engage in any kind of dialogue, seemingly at the moment. And, and North Korea has always based its foreign policy based on this idea that its preferred outcomes will be met. Um, and you know, North Korea will only join any form of dialogue, negotiation, whatever, um, when it feels that it can get its desired outcomes. We saw this. In Hanoi in 2019, the second summit between Kim Jong-un and Trump, which ended inconclusively because North Korea was not getting what it wanted from the United States, which, which at that point was on particular uh, easing of, of, of very particular sanctions. Um, is there any way that North Korea can come back and join the negotiating table? Um, at the moment, I think it's not in North Korea's interest to do so. At the moment, you know, as we speak, uh, the, uh, the the end of year party plenum of the Workers' Party has just begun. We've seen um, Kim Jong Un discuss issues of crises happening in in, in North Korea in, the, in across this year. 
Um, and usually what we've seen sorry, Edward, is... Sorry, Edward, we are running the, out of time. Oh, sorry, Edward, we are running out of time, and I do want to bring in Mason Ritchie here. Very quickly, Mason, uh, the one country that we haven't really got into and talked about is, is China. Does China have a role to play in bringing North Korea to the table, or are they not interested either? That's a very tricky, complicated question, and, and it probably depends to some degree on it, what you know, at what point you're asking it and what you, you know, what you mean when you talk about the role that China has. But the short answer to that is China could, if it wanted to, make life extremely difficult for the Kim regime to the point that it could very likely cause the regime to fall. And the way that it would do that would be to shut off uh, oil supplies coming in through pipelines from China. However, it has no interest in seeing a failed state, especially a nuclear failed state, uh, and it, of course, is nominally an ally uh, of North Korea. They do have a mutual defense treaty. Uh, and thirdly, you know, North, you know, China has no interest, uh, in the moment at least, uh, in bringing its buffer state to heel. It's not particularly enthusiastic about North Korea having a functioning nuclear program and having nuclear weapons. And indeed, you know, from a North Korean perspective, I think in the back of North Korea's head, they probably look at those. Uh, nuclear weapons is an insurance against Chinese meddling in uh, North Korean affairs as much as they look at it, or at least in part, uh, with respect to how they look at it as a tool to be used against the U.S. Uh, and South Korea alliance. Um, but at the end of the day, China has limited leverage uh, because North Korea you know, is an independent-minded state, does a lot of what it wants to do, and there is this sort of tyranny of the weak uh, where China, you know, if it becomes too involved uh, in trying to manage uh, North Korean affairs, will see its own backfire effect. Uh, and if it goes too far, it might end up causing instability on the Korean Peninsula, which is what China wants uh, absolutely to avoid. Uh, and so to that extent, it actually has relatively limited leverage. I want to thank all our guests, Mason Ritchie, Edward Howell and Lawrence Corbin. This episode was produced by David Fleming, Nihad el Michael Harwood and Gemma Harris. The studio sound was by Philip Morrison and the programme was edited by Vishnu Sheila, Anir Bransaka, Lynn Engwin and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. And thank you for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next episode.